The other areas where I see people get really tripped up is if like it's more of a business type of asset, like a hotel. When that happens, you never know, right? Like when your business is going to need liquidity, right? Like something might happen, like a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> you never access credit. Just throw that somewhere. out there. Right. And, you know, and, and, but if you're stuck, like, for instance, a lot of the guys I saw that, you know, had a tough time with the pandemic, they were in CMBS loans, you know, with hotels or, you know, whatever. And, you know, something like that happens, you need to access liquidity, but, you know, and you go to your lender and say, hey, how much is it to pay off this $5 million loan? And they say, it would be, you know, you got to give me a $5 million box plus $2 million additional dollars in the <laughs> It doesn't make a lot of sense. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Jake Clopton from Clopton Capital. And today we're learning about the debt side of commercial real estate investing. We dig into a number of aspects. We talk about the state of the market today, where he sees it looks at a lot of deals, helps syndicators through a lot of deals. And I think he has his finger on the pulse of the market more than most people out there. We also talk about what he looks for in a deal when he's evaluating a syndication deal to bring to debt or equity investors. We talk about what that means for passive syndication investors, things that they might wanna look for and clues that they can take away from his business when evaluating a deal. So there's a lot of great information in here, especially from the debt side of commercial real estate investing, which in my opinion is not really discussed enough and there's not enough information put out there for passive syndication syndication investors to think about it's a very important aspect of any syndication deal that has debt on it you need to know that that's all being taken care of squared away and the syndicator is using the appropriate type of debt for the deal so know what to look for listen to this interview and you're going to be so much further ahead I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'll be honest with you guys. I read those reviews and I love it. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up and hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Jake Clopton from Clopton Capital. Today, we're talking about the debt side of commercial real estate investing, what passive investors need to know, and so much more. Without any further ado, here we go. Jake, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Been a great conversation so far. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us a bit about what you do and uh, what you're up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been around for some period of time between 13 and 14 years. We are a nationwide commercial finance intermediary. So what we do is we connect borrowers with the right capital sources for commercial real estate projects, right? And we do, you know, fixed rate loans, bridge loans, construction, 
And then we're also quite involved in the higher capital stack space with like MAS and prep equity and joint venture equity. All asset types, we look at deals all over the place. Yeah, that's us. Awesome. You know, you know all about money. So we're going to talk about that today as it relates to real estate investing. And something that has struck me and I think a lot of other people lately is just, hey, interest rates are going up. Inflation is very high. And how's that going to affect the real estate market in the future? And as you how do you stand on the state of the lending market for real estate right now and how it's impacting the future of uh, real estate investing? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, right, like lenders are very well capitalized. The secondary markets are healthy. The capital markets are healthy. There's more than enough money out there to be lent. You know, uh, the basic economics of the real estate market are good. So, you know, I, I think, you know, capital is readily available. Um, I mean, it's not, but it's not stupid capital, right? I mean, it, it's still got its right place. So, you know, and the biggest difference is between, you know, and we're coming out of a recession, right? The biggest difference between 2009 and now was that, you know, it wasn't a financial crisis like 2009. Like 2009, you know, all this stuff, that there was a bank balance sheet, liquidity crisis and lending crisis. I mean, now there was lending available throughout the pandemic and the downturn. So, you know, that's one reason why I think now you're seeing just a, a much, much faster recovery than you did from back then. So I'm glad you pointed that out, though, because we hear people talking about, hey, realist, this is quoting, you know, real estate is great right now because, hey, people always need a place to live, housing is in short supply. But if you rewind the clock to, you know, 2007, 8, 9, those a lot of those conditions were still the same. The fundamentals of real estate didn't change back then. It was really the, the capital markets, the lending markets that in my mind, to my estimation, caused the depth of the Great Recession and the crash in real estate prices. It wasn't because all markets in the US had massively overbuilt and we had this huge oversupply of housing. Some had, for sure, but the big crash was banks, lending, Wall Street, et cetera. It wasn't a, a fundamental shift in the principles of real estate. Would you agree with that? Disagree? What are your thoughts? Well, there, there was market differences, right? And maybe you watch that movie that was about the Great Recession. Earth Recession. One of the one of the key points in there is like GE, right? They couldn't get their credit lines renewed, stuff like that. So businesses were really, you know, couldn't access financing. They're they're having real liquidity crises too, and there was mass layoffs all over the place. I remember Lehman Brothers gone, mm -hmm. everybody there gone, right? And the you know one of the biggest differences, you know, now is I think you've got a lot more you know, labor market direct support, right? You know, the PPP program, right? I mean, that was, that went right into like keeping people in their jobs and on payroll, right? And then you had direct stimulus checks and, and all this stuff. And, and, and that'll play into real, the real estate, you know, economics too, right? I mean, a, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people back in 2009 lost their jobs and, you know, th those jobs went away and businesses, you know, couldn't access financing and, you know, like, and, and a lot of retail centers are emptying up. We haven't really seen that that much this go around, right? I mean, a lot of these, of those tenants and, you know, you know, whether they're multifamily or, or retail or whatever, even, even restaurants and hotels or this whole thing that were just completely shut down, they, they've been able to kind of just hang on, right? And a lot of them recovered and some haven't, but they're still still in business, right? I mean, we, we do a lot of hotel lending and, and like some of these hotels that back in 2009, this that thing would have been gone in the first couple of months. It, they've been able to hang on because of, you know, all these kind of like direct support mechanisms they put out there. So, so I think that that's one of the biggest differences, right? I mean, you know, I mean, 
I think the real estate economics, in a way, were you know didn't go away, right? But it also always in real in commercial, especially depends on you know what asset you're in, you're in, right? And, and I mean, every one of them weathers it a little differently. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, in this you know in 2020, for instance, industrial real estate values and and the underlying economics just shot to the roof, right? Because you needed all this logistical space because everything moved online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know all the 2020 home builders were were just killing it they're crushing it, right Every, you need you needed all these new houses and so there, there was definitely certain pockets that benefited greatly you know others hotels you know i've seen some hotels outperform some just get crushed and others hang on so this one is very very much so different for everybody and and some of it just depends on where you're located and what the local restrictions are in those areas mm, okay so there's always a lot of talk about interest rates and cap rates. Like that's a big question in a rising interest rate environment is, hey, what's going to happen to prevailing cap rates? And people like to build in increases in in cap rates to their underwriting and all of that. What are you seeing from a lending standpoint of, you know, do you think cap cap rates in commercial real estate are going to go up with interest rates? I mean, are we are we looking at a, a potential reversion to a, a a ten cap market, or you know what do you what do you think there? Yeah, you know, you know my my theory on what cap rates are tied to is maybe a little different than some people, right? I, mm-hmm. I, like I, I think cap rates are more tied to how much how much equity is out there chasing deals, right? So if you look at you know what happened after two thousand nine, right, and you, you you did you had rates come up since two thousand nine, right before right this happened. But then look at what happened in California, right? I mean, you've had enormous cap rate compression and they stayed at extremely low levels. And why is that, right? You had so much equity capital coming into those markets. They were just willing to continuously push it down and, you know, in different types of equity, right? So, you know, I think, you know, there there is an enormous amount of equity out there chasing assets. And, you know, I, I think that's going to, you know, put a top on, you know how high cap rates are going to move. Uh, as, as far as lending, like I don't really care what cap rate somebody's buying something at. You know, mm. it just means they're coming to the table with more equity. Like for instance, when when you know somebody comes to me and let's say they're in like Washington State or maybe it's in Portland or whatever, right? I mean, I just I know that you know they're buying an apartment building. I'm never getting to 80% LTV on that thing because they're probably buying it at some ridiculously low cap rate and it's only going to underwrite to like a 65 LTV max. Not that it can't go higher than one value, but just the debt service is constrained, right? Because the yield that the, the property is coming with. So, you know, I mean, lend, lending will still be there. It's just how, how high can you leverage it at a certain point? So in that case, are you more focused on DSCR and or do you ever look at like price per unit compared to comparable sale price per units, or does it all come back down to DSCR? Yeah, I mean, so when you're underwriting like a fixed rate, like perm loan, right? You're you're going into the assumption that it's stabilized, right? If if you are going into a property and it's value add, right? You're like, hey, you know what? For some reason, some guy has owned this for thirty years, and you know he never raised rents, you know, and I know I can buy this thing. He's 20% below market rents. I can go in, you know, he's got prison toilets in there. I, <laughs> I can go in, raise rents, replace all the toilets, lower the water bills, you know, whatever. And, you know, I'm going to great, you know, I'm going to lower the expenses, raise the income, and it's going to be worth, you know, X plus 10, you know, two years from now. You know, 
then it would go into the product, you know, we would use as a bridge loan, right? Through like private capital or something like that. That can really kind of, you know, underwrite that sort of pro forma income, you know, versus like something that's more permanent. Like we're talking about Parham Billy's like a, a Fannie or Freddie type of deal. You know, that's that's never going to take future income into account. That's always based on historicals. So, you know, go, you know, if, if you're if you're doing something that's more pro forma based, you know, it's going to be bridge deal. And then it's going to be recap, you know, once you have, you know, recognize those, you know, higher rents. Okay. So I guess this, this, another aspect of this, that I think people don't talk about quite as much as they probably should are prepayment penalties, especially in, you know, such a a falling interest rate environment. I've, I've talked to a few people who have been kind of burned on those because they didn't really always know what they were getting into, uh, from that standpoint. Can you walk us through, you know, some of the different, um, prepayment penalties that are out there and and are you seeing have you seen people make mistakes with not understanding what they were getting into right um yes so look everybody always wants to go into a deal and have you know have it fixed for 30 years with no prepayment penalty and all this stuff right i mean that doesn't really work that way Mm -hmm. but but a lot of the prepay you know function kind of comes from who the lender is and how they do their loans right for instance, if you're, if you're, and this is like, this is something good to look into, you know, when, when you're, you know, trying to raise money or you're, try, you're trying to get a loan, what do they have to do? Do they sell those loans in the secondary market? Most likely if that lender sells those loans, right? The secondary market likes to have their investments that they're buying kind of locked up for a while. So there might be yield maintenance or defeasance that's attached to them, right? If you see yield maintenance defeasance, look, you, you're not getting out of it, right? It, it's going to be prohibitively expensive to pay the thing off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, that's just it at the end of the day, you know, and everybody asks, well, can you tell me what the calculation, it doesn't matter. You're, you're not getting out. It's never going to be worth it. It's going right? to be huge. Right. It's going to be huge. So realistically, you know, if you're in one of those, you, you got to go into it saying, I'm not doing anything with this property. And, you know, if you do a 10 year loan, I'm not doing this, anything with property for 10 years, right? It's a long-term investment. I don't want to recapitalize. I'm never going to have to access equity, right? Stuff like that then great, lock in a low fixed rate, put it to bed, come back in 10 years, redo the loan, whatever it is, right? If you are doing something that's more short term or you want to access your equity sometime in the future, right? Or if it's more of a business type of piece of real estate, like a hotel, those are the times when, you know, I see people get really tripped up with prepayment penalties, right? For instance, like if it's, you know, if you're buying a property, you're doing some sort of value add and you're expecting the value to go up, you know, in the next two years and you want to recap or you want to sell it or something like that as a short term strategy, do a bridge loan. It's more expensive, but just do a bridge loan. It's going to be a lot more, less expensive when you're trying to get out of it, right? Because the two year deal, that's what it's there for, all this stuff, right? Or if you're, you know, let's say you're, you know, like, hey, I'm, I, I might continue to look for more properties and I've got this apartment building that's at 50% loan of value and maybe I want to access equity in the future, right? The chances that you're going to get a second mortgage to access that equity are, are almost, you know, zero, right? And especially if you have like a Fannie or Freddie deal on it, that prohibits that, right? So, you know, then, you know, you probably need to look for something that's more open, you know, shorter fixed period, you know, something like that, at least bring in the prepays, go to a local bank or, you know, so a lot of credit unions have no prepays um, or at least like get something that's a step down so you know what it is, right? The other areas where I see people get really tripped up is if like, it's more of a business type of asset, like a hotel. When that happens, you never know, right? Like when your business is going to need liquidity, 
right? Like something might happen, like a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> you never access credit. Just throw that out there. Right. And, you know, and, and, but if you're stuck, like, for instance, a lot of the guys I saw that, you know, had a tough time in the pandemic, they were in CMBS loans, you know, with hotels or, you know, whatever. And, you know, something like that happens, you need to access liquidity, but, you know, and you go to your lender and say, hey, how much is it to pay off this $5 million loan? And they say, it would be, you know, you got to give me a $5 million box plus $2 million additional dollars in the free bank. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, they, they, every, everything's different. And, and, and it's the same, it's the same thesis as like, you know, you know, everybody, every investment is different for everybody else. Like what, what is your equity? What, what's your personal goal here? What, where, you know, what are you going to be doing in the future? And what type of asset is this? And what do you have to ask in the future? So. Okay. Okay. So to, I guess to bring it maybe full circle or kind of sum it up, we have a lot of listeners out there listening to, to us right now who are passive investors in syndications. They want to invest in the best deals they can find, or they can, they want to understand what they're getting into, but they're not going to be in the driver's seat on these deals. Can we bring it together and, and just talk about things that they should look for and say, we'll talk about maybe apartment, self-storage or, or mobile home park deals. Cause those, those aspects are kind of the most popular right now with the folks that, that I speak to who listen to the sure. show, you know? Yeah. A, a lot of, right. So if there's investing into, into syndications, right. I mean, as far as like prepayment penalties, what type of financing, you know, whoever their syndicator is using, what, what it's really going to come down to is, you know, if they need to get their equity back, how's that going to happen? Right. I mean, if their syndicator is structured where, you know, they've got a fund that maybe is an umbrella to a bunch of smaller properties. And then, you know, it's got access to liquidity and they have redemption, right? And all, all this stuff, right? I mean, it's not so much of an issue, but if they are investing into syndications of individual properties, then yeah, that can be an issue, right? And, it, and if, you know, if you're investing into some property and you're like, hey, you know, maybe I want my money back in two years. Yeah, you, you probably need to pay attention to how locked up the financing here is, right? Because the only way for you to get out is if somebody else comes along and buys your shares directly, which I guarantee they're going to buy them at a discount, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think that that's where you really need to pay attention to it is if you, when you're investing into single asset deals and then like how locked up your money is. I mean, and it, but, it, but again, everybody's different, right? Some people want to invest their 75,000, 100,000 bucks and they don't want it to reinvest again in two years. So let's lock this thing up for 10 years and then give it back to me then, you know? So it, it's, it depends on, you know, what your timeline is. Yeah. You want to keep that capital deployed. Now, one of the things I get concerned about is I see folks doing deals where it appears to me that the financing and the business plan aren't on the same timelines where they might have a pretty big value add on an apartment complex, but they're saying they're going to get it done a lot more quickly than I kind of figure that they can just on a maybe more qualitative level and quantitative. Let's say you're really going to renovate that many units in that short of a time frame. I don't know how feasible that is. You know, it just doesn't, something doesn't add up. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And they might be using it, you know, a longer term note or something like that. Are you seeing that happen a, a lot? Like, what are your thoughts about that and in, in having realistic timeframes on those value adds? It's a good question. You know, I mean, as far as, as timeframes and performance and all this stuff, right? I mean, it's kind of the same, same answer. Like, maybe it all works out that way, but maybe it doesn't, right? And you're really not going to know the real answer, like, until you, you really get into the thing. 
You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I would trust a syndicator's pro forma a little bit more than I would just trust like a commercial real estate broker's, you know, <laughs> sure. like offering memorandum. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I, like, I don't know if that's an eight cap. <laughs> you know, that's, that may not work out that way. But, you know, what, what it says is when, when I think when you're pricing anything to perfection, right? You, you know, and you got, you know, you see someone that says, well, I'm going to do this entire value add plan in 18 months. So I only want an 18 month loan. You probably need to give yourself some, some wiggle room in there, right? Things come up. And a, and a lot of value add scenarios that I see, you know, get delays is where are they located, right? Like, let's, if you're going into a building that is 100% occupied to do a value add, like, you got to get people out. And I'm guessing you're going to have somebody in there that doesn't want to move all their cats out and, you know, doesn't want to go to a hotel. Like, you know, I mean, stuff like that happens, right? And so, some like a lot of that's you know depends where you're located, right? So if you're in Texas, you're gonna get people up. If you're in Chicago, you know they might if they want to fight you, they're gonna stay in there for a year. So you know so where it's located, what the local government rules are, stuff like that, and the tenant laws around that definitely comes into play. So that, that's just one thing to keep in mind, right? And and really, you know, when I when I'm talking to a syndicator and I'm like, hey, how realistic is your timeline? I also want to look at their past deals and see how their pro formas have worked out. Right, based on what they were saying. Right, I mean, if I if I've got some guy that's done ten deals and you know they're all in similar markets, kind of around the area, and he's like, hey, based on the last ten deals we did, we were in and out in eighteen months. Okay, great, this is the eleventh deal, let's do it. Right, but if it's the guy's first deal and he normally does stuff in Maryland, it's his first deal in I don't know Florida or you know what I mean. I mean, that, mm-hmm. there, there's you probably need some padding in there to make sure that you know if and when and most likely it's real estate. Look, it's when something comes up. You know, there's there's wiggle room that. So nobody has to execute on extension or expensive extension periods and all this stuff. Okay. So I guess that that brings up a a really great point or something that I want to clarify on before we move on to the the last part of the show is when you are looking at a syndicator for for your purposes, when you're looking at a syndicator for some role you're going to play in the business, whether it's helping them find debt or equity or however you're coming in, what do you look at in addition to, you know, their, their past track record? Sure. If I'm looking at somebody just on the, the debt aspect, right? I mean, there you certainly want to make sure the guy's got experience and all this stuff. But what I really care about when I'm leveraging a deal with, you know, with, with a loan is are the assumptions correct, right? Like, give me the give me the lease costs, you know, uh, you know, of, like a put uh, other properties in the area and like show me the business plan and like is it is it going to make sense? Is this property really going to you know get up to that level? If the guy's going to be managing it himself. Then I really care about like the, the whole property management experience level, mm-hmm. right? But I wouldn't say, you know, having, you know, 10 deals behind him is going to make or break the deal if I'm just doing a loan. It's more about making sure the economics of the deal are there and I can prove it out, you know, in the market today. Sometimes I get guys that say, hey, yeah, well, in two years, you know, leases are going to be X plus two. So we're going to underwrite to that. No, it's not going to work out though. You got to <laughs> underwrite to today. Right. And then that's how we'll, you know, we'll base this thing. We we also raise joint venture equity, right? So not real estate securities, JV, where they have a, where they have a real say in what's going on. And when I'm doing a deal like that, then absolutely there's a very, very strong focus on prior deals that the syndicators have entered and exited and did those work out the way that they expected. 
Right. So it, and it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you you've got equity guys that are taking on a lot more risk than just somebody that has a first mortgage lien. So and it's you know it's it's hyper focused on executability of the business plan and it has it worked on the class, right? Because realistically, the way that they're work, looking at it is you know it's an investment and like has that investment for prior guys worked out the same way. So, so what's the don't need to be too specific about this, but what's the typical profile of a JV equity investor that you might bring into a deal? Are we talking more institutional or individual investors or all of the above? Sure. I mean, it's not like BlackRock, right? Mm-hmm. We do have, it's small to middle market, you know, equity sources, either, either funds or you know, maybe some family offices. Mm-hmm. I would say like the check sizes we typically deal with, they're like three million bucks and up. Right. So the minimum check size that they bring in is going to be like three million bucks and just up from there. Right. Uh, I, I think the biggest difference in what we do versus, you know, a lot of deals you see like like a crowd street syndicator or something like that is it's really a joint venture. Right. I mean, there's a real say they have controls, all this stuff. They're not passive. Right. So in, anytime somebody's putting out a PPM or a regular offering or crowd street sort of deal. Right. I mean, those are that's passive that's just you, you know the, the investors have no say they're kind of just along for the ride it's basically a coupon clip right for the most part so it's, it's much different right and so like for instance the jv partner could force a sale you know mm-hmm. at some point in the future and stuff like that and they're probably signing on a loan if there is a loan um well they're usually in a limited partner seat okay right so they don't really sign on the deal but they may be bringing 90 percent of the equity Right. Whereas in the general partners are usually the ones signing on the carve outs and or a personal guarantee if that's required to a loan. And they're coming in with about 10 percent of the required. Equity. Interesting. I would have expected I'm not a lender. Right. So I don't have that level of expertise, but I would have expected a lender to still require that that JV, even though it's an LP position, since they have so much equity, I would have expected the lender to require that person to to sign on the loan to some extent, at least, you know, bad boy type of stuff. You know, because they're in a limited partner position, it's it's re- it's not really necessary. There possibly becomes times when, you know, you'll go in and they'll underwrite the limited partners because there is a scenario where the limited partners could take over the property and need mm-hmm. to step into the general partner position. So they still need to underwrite them and be comfortable with them potentially as the GP. But but going in, as long as, you know, for instance, and a lot of these are shorter term deals, right? Bridge deals and a lot of private lender stuff like that. So as long as the general partners are kind of meeting the experience and net worth and liquidity requirements that they want on carve outs, you know, they're they're comfortable. They're not going to require it. But they're still going to underwrite the LP in case that fallback of them stepping in happens. Okay. Sometimes they're going to look into it, make sure it's not some like uh, drug cartel investor, but beyond that, it's... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If it's, yeah, if it's Pablo Escobar, they might have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> or El Chapo, but I think he's in solitary confinement for the rest of time. So that shouldn't be a problem. All right, cool, great. Right now we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital, by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. 
back to the show. All right, Jake, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? All the equity that went in my business has by far, you know, given the best return of investment out of anything probably combined that I've Nice, nice. Investing in yourself in a way. So I certainly appreciate it. There you go. Yeah. Nice. I don't have to wear a tie. So (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? The worst investment I ever made is a goofy one. At one point, this is probably 10 years ago, I bought a an assignment of a contract for like a lawsuit as like an investment. Oh, geez. It was really bad. <laughs> it completely blew up in my face. So yeah, it, I, you know, it was it was really interesting. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I would say that one. Was it, were you taken in by a potential return or, you know, what brought you in? What tempted you, you know? There was potentially a way that it could be worked out that I would have gotten an equity position in a piece of real estate. But, you know, this kind of goes along with my thesis now is that I want to invest in the things that I know and I don't want to run too many races, right? And like, that's why I invest in real estate and I don't invest in crypto or Dogecoin or, you know, I'm the world's worst stock picker, so I'm not going to invest in stock. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I stick to the thing, you know, I'm just trying to stay in my lane as far as things that I know I'm good at, that I know every day versus trying to get tricky about in, in like kind of drawing in by FOMO and like other things that people are doing. Like I, I, have, a, I have a buddy that, you know, I'm sure we all do, right? That owns a ton of crypto and all X, XYZ things, you know? So that's, that's not me. So. Nice. Well, he might be kicking himself right now, you know, looking at looking at prices <laughs> lately. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Most important lesson I've learned in business is real was really, you know, back back when you're starting out, right? You know, there, there's kind of two aspects to it. One is, you know, just having grit and sticking with it. I think 90% of businesses that, you know, don't work out the the person that was doing it usually gave up probably not too soon before it was actually going to work out right like usually you you know because every business is a learning curve and you've got to be willing to go into it make mistakes and screw up just as much as humanly possible and usually you're hitting that critical mass of like really screwing up right before you start learning how to really you know do it well right and i feel like a lot of people you know you get to that point you know where you know things aren't working out it's like ah that's it right so really getting getting past that, right, into the area where you're making the right decisions consecutively over and over, it is, is I, I think, decent advice for a lot of people, right? Because um, it's not easy because you see a lot of businesses, you know, especially if you watch CNBC, you know, like everybody's becoming a billionaire like overnight. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen that way. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, just sticking it out. And, and it's longer than you think. It's probably at least two years before it's actually something that you can live off of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- that's probably the best bit of advice. And then the, as far as investing, again, just doing stuff that you have competency in and, and no, and also don't buy stocks after I buy them because you will lose money. <laughs> Maybe buy them from you at a, at a steep, yeah. steep discount. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Well, Jake, it's been a great conversation today. A lot of lessons and knowledge for our listeners. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more or anything like that, where can they track you down? Find me on LinkedIn. Super easy to find. Jake Clopton. Our website, cloptoncapital.com. We're incredibly easy to find. So, And I'm always happy to chat about deals. 
Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every time, and I mean it every time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 